When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. I am standing in the parking lot of a barbecue joint that's just a couple blocks from my house. It happens to be one of my favorite barbecue joints in all of Austin, and really all of Texas for that matter. I don't really care for their sausage, but their pork ribs are exceptional, and their brisket is to fucking die for. It is moist and fatty and smoky and succulent, and it does all the things that you want great brisket to do. I grew up on this stuff. I'm from Texas. Texas barbecue has, for me, always held this special place in my heart. When I thought about trying to eat less meat, I'm like, yeah, I can get rid of burgers and steak. I could probably get rid of fajitas, but Texas barbecue, man, I don't know if I can ditch it. At the same time, I am not blind to how problematic to say the least, it is to eat meat. You know, there's a lot of information out there about just how bad cows are for the environment. The statistic that leaps out to me, if cows were a country, they would be the third largest emitter globally. So it'd go China, US, cows. Like that's how bad eating meat is. And I'm guilty of it, man. I'm not a vegetarian. I try and be conscious about it, but I only try so hard, you know? And if I'm being really honest, that's not the end of the story when it comes to my own carbon footprint. I drive a large car, and I also am no stranger to airplanes. I mean, I haven't been flying as much since the pandemic started, but, you know, I like to take trips, and I want to visit places and see the world. For the last several years, I've been rationalizing a lot of this away. I think I just got it in my head that, look, if we're going to do something about climate change. It's got to come from change from up on high. You know, we need big laws or big companies or big industries or whatever it is to take meaningful steps to really bend the carbon curve. All of that is true. All of that is definitely true. 
but it doesn't excuse individual behavior. And I think I've just been, I've just gotten to a place where I have not been honest about my own complicity in having a high carbon footprint. And damn it, I should be somebody who is particularly aware and sensitive to these things. Recently, though, I read a book that caused me to do some of that personal reckoning. And that brings us to today's guest. I'm Kim Nicholas, and I'm an associate professor of sustainability science at Lund University in Sweden. And I'm the author of the new book, Under the Sky We Make. What kind of science do you do? Tell me a little bit more about your science. I've done three interdisciplinary degrees. Is that enough? I feel like you need more. (laughs) I did do a fourth. Thank you very much. The the only disciplinary degree I have is in viticulture and enology, so wine growing and winemaking. But basically, I'm studying the interaction between people, land, and climate. When I sat down to interview Kim, we played the small world game a little bit and then finally discovered that one of her best friends is married to somebody who I used to share an office with. Her friend's name is Eve. Yeah, and Eve made an appearance in your book. Yes, she did. Okay, yeah. so you've actually read it, or at least you, you know, skimmed it. Oh, I've read it. Here. Oh, no, right. no, we're going okay, to fucking talk about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, someone has actually read it. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's, a, it's an unusual thing for an interviewer to do. <laughs> your book caused me to do some real reckoning with myself. It made me uncomfortable, damn it, because it provoked a lot of introspection. It made me look at my behavior as an individual in a way that I realized I had not been doing for a long time and that I had actually been rationalizing away, that Mm -hmm. I had settled into this mindset maybe over the last 10 or 15 years where I understood the climate crisis to be a structural societal problem and that what is most important is that we hold governments accountable and businesses accountable and that we create systems that incentivize less carbon use and that's not really about the individual. And to the extent that people were trying to make the case that those of us who have a high carbon footprint need to take a good look at ourselves in the mirror, my layers of denial had been very active. So I guess I just want to start off by calling out, like you made me think, ma'am, madame, <laughs> and uh, and it was I'm sorry, and it was hard. You're welcome. Uh, yeah. all of you above. I, I have to imagine that's actually something you like hearing because, look, I do dream about jet setting. I do eat meat. I do have an oversized vehicle. I do have a lawn. I have a high carbon footprint. And for Christ's sakes, I'm a left-leaning climate scientist with a PhD from Stanford. How in the hell could I not be more honest with my own behavior about my carbon footprint? So that discomfort and that reckoning is something I want to take the listeners along for a journey in this conversation. And I also want to understand how you've done some of that reckoning as well, because I think you have. So Maybe let's start there. Can you tell me a little bit about coming to terms with your own individual complicity in terms of being somebody who has a high carbon footprint, yet has a career devoted to dealing with the climate crisis? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it. And it is definitely a journey I am on as well. And there have been a number of kind of awakening moments for me. I mean, one that comes to mind is... In 2017, I published a study that was led by Seth Wines, which was about high-impact individual personal climate actions for high emitters. And 
we had a graph that was compiling these 39 peer-reviewed studies and carbon calculators and 148 scenarios and trying to put all the numbers together and say, okay, what is it actually that makes a big difference? And the answer is for high emitters like you and me, the things that cut our personal emissions fast are to go car, flight, and meat free. So Seth and I kind of jokingly called that graph, hey, rich polluters, dot XLS. You know, it was like, hey, people, like, these are the things you need to know. I mean, we've been working on this for a long time. And I was like, wait a minute, it's me. I'm a rich polluter. And all my friends are rich polluters and everyone I went to college and grad school with. I am the target audience for this information. And it's so bizarre that, as you say, we are among the most knowledgeable people on this topic and are speaking out about it really deeply involved. And yet it's possible kind of existing in this avoidance of really thinking about what that means for me. Where were you a particularly bad offender? I don't imagine you chowing on a bunch of steaks and Texas barbecue and hamburgers, but I think there's other places where in your life you've had high carbon complicity. Well, I come from an agricultural family um, and my grandfather helped invent industrial factory farming. So we can come back to the meat aspect, but... Oh yeah, that's right. You do have some meat culpability here. (laughs) (laughs) At least inherited it, yeah. I mean, I was like most folks who have high personal emissions in that most of my climate pollution came from flying. And that's also something to reckon with that basically when you look at the data, carbon footprint is correlated with income. So the higher income you have, the bigger Mm -hmm. environmental and climate impact you tend to have. And the most extreme example of that is flying because the average person pre-pandemic, the average person does not fly. Most people on earth have never been on a plane. Even most Americans in the year before the pandemic didn't fly. So if you do fly, you're already quite exceptional. And if you're a frequent flyer, which I was, you're really, really globally exceptional. It's 1% of the global population that causes half of the emissions from flying who are frequent flyers. And I was definitely in that group. So that was certainly the biggest part of my personal emissions. Yeah. So one of the reasons I wanted to lead off with all of my discomfort and inner conflict around this is that I think on one hand, there's a being honest with yourself aspect to it. I need to look at myself and my own behavior. I think that there's also a defensiveness that can kick in. And this certainly happens around meat consumption a lot. But I think it happens on all of the big individual behaviors that have a high carbon footprint. And I think it's one of the hardest things to deal with in terms of communicating to people, we need to take this seriously, we need to look at our individual behavior, but not present it in a shaming way. And I don't think that there's a simple answer to how that messaging comes across, but I I wonder how much you've kind of turned that idea over in your mind, how much you've had to reckon with it. Totally. And I have a research project right now called The Takeoff of Staying on the Ground, which is investigating this phenomenon that's started in Sweden and has been spreading of a flight-free movement. So people coming together, pledging to stay on the ground, recognizing that this is basically the highest impact climate action that individuals can take if you do fly. And so the Swedish word is flight shame. It's a feeling of people themselves feeling guilt or shame for their own behavior. They have values of being someone who does care and does know about the climate crisis. They felt this cognitive dissonance and this discomfort from acting in a way that was not in accordance with their values. But I think it's very interesting that the narrative, especially in the U.S. as I perceive it, it's mistranslated or misinterpreted as flight shaming. 
that there's this phenomenon of pointing the finger at others. And that phenomenon sort of doesn't really exist, but it's widely decried. <laughs> like in this study of people who had actually stopped <laughs> flying, very few of them mentioned the idea of flight shaming or being influenced from others. So it's kind of constructed. And I mean, it would be interesting. I don't know if we'll actually do this in our research, but I would be interested to know where did this construction come from? Because I think it's unhelpful in framing the debate around finger pointing and shaming others. There's not that much of that happening. There's some of it on climate Twitter, maybe, but like, it's not really what people are saying. Well, I mean, I think whenever you have cognitive dissonance, whenever you have a mismatch between behavior and values, if you're the individual who exists in that sort of mindset, in that state, and then it's revealed to you that it exists, that your behavior does not align with your values, the natural reaction is to get defensive. And whether or not somebody puts you in that defensive posture is almost irrelevant. You yeah, almost are going to act like, how dare you show me my own carpet footprint or whatever and make yeah. it somebody else's fault because I think that's just a natural human reaction, which I don't think excuses it. I think it maybe explains it. But I think it's an important problem because if one of the things that is an ambition of this book is to try and say, look, we as people can do better. And if we do better, it actually will be measurably better, both in terms of carbon footprint, but also in terms of the kind of behavior we're modeling for ourselves, for fellow citizens, for children, and so forth. I think maybe the only lesson of it all is that you have to go into it knowing that people may be defensive. I think that it's very powerful for people to speak from their own lived experience. And hearing the stories of people who have made changes and what motivated them is motivating without finger pointing. For me, probably the biggest change was cutting my flying about 90%. So I'm a recovering frequent flyer. So in 2010, I took 15 round-trip flights. So now that sounds obscene to me, but at the time that was kind of normal for my circle. And I mean, one unhelpful dynamic, I think, in life and certainly in us tackling the climate crisis is comparing up. You know, you can always find someone else who does something worse or more frequently or whatever. So it's like, oh, I'm not flying that much. I mean, so-and-so did twice as much or whatever. But there is this culture that is starting to shift in academia, but still I think is present that the more you fly, the more valuable you are. You are in demand. Your CV is given credit. You are seen as important if you're called to these international meetings it's glamorous. And, you know, of course, it can be fun to go to new places and try new things and meet new people. And so I think that was the mindset I was coming from. And I applied to 66 faculty jobs over three years. I got this one in Sweden. Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk about the academic job market, but, you know, I was like, you need to to work a little harder, Kim. I'm not sure. (laughs) You got to get that up to 90. Easy. Yeah. All right. Well, it worked out. I mean, I got this job and I was like, great, I'm moving to Sweden. And I really didn't think about the carbon cost. I thought about being far from my family, but I had lived on the East Coast and they were in California. That was a plane flight as well. I was like, the flights are pretty cheap. I can come home whenever I want. I'll just like sit on a plane, watch a couple movies. And I was not thinking about the climate implications. I made that decision in 2010. I took this job and moved here. And then I felt really stuck because then I was in like a very uncomfortable position because my climate consciousness was getting louder and louder. And I was having a harder time kind of ignoring and reconciling this, my own behavior compared with what I knew was needed. But I felt like, wait a minute, I can't say I'll never get on a plane again because I felt like that would mean I would never see my family again. And I didn't want to make that decision. So 
I had this beer with my friend Charlie at a conference in Vienna, a climate conference. And I had flown there and he had taken the train. We were about equal distance away from the conference. I had this realization sitting there and looking around this big conference hall full of important scientists giving important talks on basically how screwed we were from climate change and how bad it was going to be and how urgently we have to decarbonize. And I was just felt like a conference of doctors puffing on cigarettes and saying, how are we going to get our patients to quit? This is so important. I couldn't handle yeah. it anymore, basically. <laughs> so yeah, I was able to talk about that yeah. with Charlie because Charlie had already really cut his flying. So his decision was to stop flying within Europe. And basically, if it's possible to get somewhere without flying, he does. And there were a bunch of decisions he made around that to deliberately choose to have more local collaborations, to find adventures closer to home. And I thought, okay, I can do that. So I think having this path open up of what was feasible for me, it really opened a lot more doors and had all these unexpected benefits of adventure and romance that I hadn't anticipated when I thought, oh, this will just be sacrifice. Yeah. Well, it does feel in a way that the flight sacrifice is in some ways feels like the biggest one. Like I could stop eating meat. I could drive a smaller car. Those don't feel so, so tough, but there's this wonderlust that I have that I feel like you had, have, are still having. I don't know where it is, mm -hmm. but where, you know, I want to see the world, man. I want to see different countries. I want to see different cultures. I want to experience different environments. And plane rides make that easier, especially in the U.S., where we don't have much of a rail system. So that one is kind of a tough. And I think if we're ranking things, it is that order, right? It is flights, automobiles, and meat in terms of individual decisions. Correct. That's right. That's the mm. climate pollution savings. If you fly, that's your biggest source of climate pollution, pretty much. Then cars. For the average American, cars are the biggest, but the average American does not fly much. And then gotcha. Is, yeah. Is okay. Good. Yeah. I do think that there's a sort of principle of progress, not perfection here, that you start to make some meaningful action and maybe you don't knock it all out of the park. But if people are going to do that kind of personal reckoning, certainly can I reduce flights is a very big one. How meaningful are these numbers? How meaningful is the contribution of individuals, of wealthy Americans? How much is it warming the planet? And how do people think about their own complicity if they want to take steps to be better? I really think what Americans do in the next 10 years will make or break the climate forever. It really wow. matters because... Americans have the biggest historical responsibility for climate breakdown. We've put the most climate pollution in the atmosphere. We're about 5% of the global population, and we've caused about 25% of the climate pollution. So we're the biggest offender there. It has been really painful for me to realize what a terrible role America has played in the world in terms of climate policy, both in terms of being the leading home of climate dismissives and, and outright climate denial and organized misinformation campaigns, as well as in the climate policy arena mm -hmm. at the UN climate conferences. I got to be in the room where the Paris Agreement was adopted, which was a really amazing experience. And at that time, the US did work hard to get that passed. But there's so many <laughs> decades and examples of the US refusing to engage meaningfully and making unfair demands of other countries without doing anything ourselves. I mean, George Bush in 1992 famously said, the American way of life is not up for negotiation. And that is emblematic of, oh, there's this perceived sacred cow that we can't talk about overconsumption in the U.S. because somehow the idea of consumption is 
baked into our idea of freedom and equality. And as if the constitution is like, yes, you can just pollute as much as you want because damn it, that's your freedom. And I think that's something we really have to question and change. You know, what is the American dream that's worth living and passing on and how do we make that happen? Yeah, I mean, I would like to believe that there is a generation that values experience over materialism, that values relationships and existing in reality over things and stuff and trips to goodwill and, I don't know, big boats or whatever. I think that's one of the reasons the flight part of this is so difficult in a way is because taking a trip is an exciting experience and being somewhere new and different. And I think there is a way of saying, okay, that is valuable, but I need to think about my overall carbon budget and am I making significant reductions in other places and not just becoming a frequent flyer, but occasionally taking a very specific trip and maybe not as far away because every time you hop on a plane, your carbon footprint just goes through the roof. One thing I think is really important is to decouple the idea, break the link in our minds between travel and flying. We do not Mm. need flying to travel. We do not need flying to have new experiences, to meet new people, to see new places. And even in the U.S., there are trains. I have taken a train once by myself across the country from San Francisco to New York. No way. (laughs) The pictures exist. It it happened. (laughs) And then my husband and I took a, made our wedding, basically, a three and a half week train party across North America. So he comes from Edmonton and around there in Canada, and I'm from the Bay Area in California. And we are lucky to have friends all over the place. And so we thought, okay, we really don't want to say, hey, everybody fly to this one place for a weekend to celebrate us and our love because this totally conflicts with our values and priorities. So we did it by train. We gathered in these small regional groups where almost no one else had to travel. And friends hosted us at their houses or by a lakeshore around a campfire, all these wonderful settings. And actually was really nice to see our friends really get to know each other as well, because we were bringing together friends from different phases of our lives. And he and I had friends who hadn't met yet. And so that was really lovely. So that's one example of adventure. It's a great one though, because in thinking of it, it does call to mind, like for me, creativity is born of constraint, you know? And I think if you're like, I have to reduce my carbon footprint, doesn't mean life's going to be freaking boring, you know? Like (laughs) you don't don't have to go there yet. And there's another way of experiencing and slowing down. And that's actually very appealing about that. I want to shift a little bit. One of my favorite sections of the book was when you talked about grief. You had a very touching story about a close friend who died of cancer. And the way you talked about his experience of dying and linked that with the idea that there is loss already on planet Earth, and there's going to be more of that, it both broke my heart and felt cathartic. That there was a coming to terms with an emotion that I didn't realize was active in me about Mm -hmm. grieving the past. Because I think grief, like so many other things I've been talking about, can exist comfortably under layers of denial. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the importance of getting in touch with your own grief and what that meant as it relates to the changing environment, the Anthropocene. So yes, one of my best friends died of cancer at age 37. And he and his wife are both doctors. So they knew from the second they got the diagnosis what this meant. When I called another friend, I got the news from my friend Lucy. It was my friend Pubby who died. And his wife Lucy called me and it was really devastated. And I was completely in shock. 
I called another friend who was also a doctor, our friend Meg, who already knew the diagnosis. And I was trying to get some kind of number or point on a graph or probability. I think in numbers for living, I wanted some kind of predictor. I don't know. What are the odds? Or I didn't even know what I was asking for, really. And she said, this diagnosis means Will be young at his funeral. And then I was like, okay, that I understand. (laughs) Then I know what we're dealing with here. It's not a perfect analogy for climate change. There are many and environmental change. There are many differences. But it was just really helpful. So going through this very human experience of, okay, we are supporting and loving and being there for our friend who is dying. And there was just facing that reality and saying, okay, what is possible in the range of declining possibilities for him? And then supporting Lucy and supporting him to be able to live those out. I mean, it was devastating, but also a really beautiful experience to be a part of and get to witness because Puppy and Lucy just faced it with so much strength and grace. And from that, I think I learned a lot. For example, it's so much worse to not confront hard truths. That takes actually so much energy and it prevents you from being able to do what you can in the time that you have. And I didn't think about this at the time that he was dying, but shortly thereafter, I started thinking about climate and ecological grief and hearing that kind of bubbling up in conversation. Mm. I think that has been just helpful and also cathartic for me to realize, okay, somehow we're like trained as scientists, or this at least was my experience. We have to be positive and we have to frame everything in this positive light. And we're not allowed to talk about the feelings that go with some pretty dire predictions. And even for not just predictions of things that might happen in the future if we don't change course, but things that are happening now that we are living through and experiencing now. And have a momentum to, and are set in motion too, right? You know, it's not just what's happening now. It's like what we're committed to even. Well, that has actually been one important thing that I learned from writing this book, because I had this idea Mm. that we're really locked into a lot of warming, no matter what we do now. And that has been actually debunked. If you read the latest IPCC report and some recent papers that I, I cite in the book, that is kind of a misunderstanding. We actually do have a real window right now to stabilize the climate. Interesting. Okay, I'm behind. You're a recovering frequent flyer. I'm a recovering academic. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, a, I had missed this as well. Like I had, it was quite late. I mean, I think it was in fact checking. So it was like the last stage of the book that I got to this passage that I wrote, for example, we're already committed to at least 1.5 degrees of warming today with the carbon that's in the atmosphere now. And then I read more studies. I was like, wait a minute, that's actually not correct. We only have a few years to avoid it. It's going to be hard and a lot of tough work, but actually the climate does respond relatively quickly to the carbon we put in the atmosphere. I mean, there are many long-term effects, the oceans. The cryosphere, especially, I think, when things are sort of set in motion and that a certain amount of melting may happen, even if we halt and reverse now. I don't know. These are guesses. But that is comforting to hear that there is more time to stabilize in a general sense than I think is often understood. At least the temperature, yes. And yeah. I mean, the faster we do that, the faster we get to zero emissions. That's when, once we do that, temperatures will stabilize. And that's when we have a chance to start even repairing and at least adapting to what we have already caused. Wow. Okay. How about that? A little hope. All right. But I don't want to get there yet. I want to stick with the grief. <laughs> Back to grief. I was trying to drag us into hope, but no, let's just wallow in our grief. I'm not I'm ready not... there yet, damn it. That's okay. That's okay, um, Mike. I'm here for you in No, I, Well, because I do think that there is for the 
individual citizen who is persuaded that climate change is upon us and is inevitable, there is an underlying anxiety about what that means. Some of that is about Mm. fear and is about uncertainty and how do I plan and what is this going to mean and what can we do to discover that among that complicated soup of emotions is also grief. Something's been lost. That's a big theme for me. I'm a real uh, sucker for nostalgia and for the way I experienced the world in my childhood and the way I grew to have an environmental ethic and a connection with the natural world and a lot of different environments and to make peace with the idea that some of that is lost and what that looks like and what that feels like and what those species are or what those landscapes are, kind of hard to say, but that that's part of the work too. I guess I just, I want to call out its importance because for me, I hadn't done that. I hadn't done that. Mm. And I realized I needed it. I realized there was something in my heart that needed to come out. So maybe I'm just paying a compliment. I will gladly accept it. Thank you so much. I, I, I actually got an excerpt of the book this week was in The Guardian from that chapter about grief. And a lot of scientists have been getting in touch and and writing about it. And there are a lot of us feeling this way. And I really appreciate that people are connecting with it and speaking out about it and hopefully creating a bit more space to have those conversations because I think they're really necessary. You landed on an important theme that I'm not sure I see expressed in a lot of other places. I like the phrase you used. I'm not trying to win the grief Olympics. I think was the <laughs> term you used in the book. Like, I'm, you know, if I get a bronze in grief, then uh, I'll be happy. <laughs> and then the other thing about your friend Putty, uh, who passed away, that really stuck out was when he talked about, I'm going to mangle the quote probably, but how as he's approaching death, he comes to understand that for so much of his life, he thought it was a first-person autobiography and that he really came to experience meaning and connection through understanding story in the third person as part of a set of relationships, which we all are. Which I think that lesson in the loss of a friend also feels very translatable to the ecological grief and ecological loss. After he died, a group of us were up at Fallen Leaf Lake in the Sierras in California, where we spent a lot of time together. And we had this story hour about him. It was so beautiful and hilarious and not G-rated and also tragic and sad. But I think what really struck me was seeing there was no one in that room who knew all those stories, even his wife and his brother and really close friends who all knew him really well. We all learned something new. And everyone has these different pieces of themselves that overlap and never really, I mean, we don't even even know everything about ourselves, right? Because there are pieces of ourselves that only others hold. Yeah, I think a lot of the book is about these relationships. And basically the point is what life is all about is, a good life on earth for people and thriving nature and our connection with each other and nature. And that's the point. That's what we need to protect and fight for. And I mean, it's pretty basic, but we're not doing it right now and it's killing us and it's killing the planet and we should be doing it. Yeah. Well said. Okay. So this is sort of the last thing I want to talk about and it's an Anthropocene sort of thing. So just to sort of recap some of what we've talked about Let's go through some of these emotions. Let's process some of these deep feelings. Let's take a look at ourselves in the mirror and individual behavior. And then let's also hold businesses and governments accountable. Let's push on all fronts. I think it is hard to keep this issue 
of the climate crisis specifically, front and center. And I think one of the things that the Anthropocene represents for me is establishing a new relationship with time and how we experience it and how that extends across generations before us and generations afterwards. So I want to hear you talk about how if you've done any kind of internal work to stretch your relationship to time and experience yeah. it in the human condition and in, in the third person. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because to me that is a huge theme of the book and something I have been thinking a lot about. And I start the book by telling a story of my mother's mother's mother. So my great grandmother, her, her name was Clara, and she's someone I never met. But in telling her story and realizing how her choices really set the conditions and, and possibilities for my life. She escaped from Ukraine and immigrated to the U.S. in the early 1900s. And she had her wedding ring sewn into her jacket because she was leaving with her husband. But if the authorities caught you with your husband, they would know that you were leaving for good and would detain you. So I have that wedding ring now. And that's a piece of carbon that she left behind. And kind of thinking of this idea that, okay, the diamond is forever, but really carbon is forever. And that's true in the atmosphere. And some of the carbon that she burned crossing the oceans, making this escape, is still in the atmosphere. And carbon in the atmosphere, some of it lasts for 10,000 years. So that's about twice as long as the Great Pyramids or Stonehenge have been around. And that's the scale on which we who today, here and now, are affecting life on Earth. We're leaving this incredibly important and critical and urgent legacy with our actions now and really until 2030 is just so important because it's the last window that we have to stabilize the climate and avoid catastrophic climate change. That really brought it home to me. And I think it was actually a conversation with my sister. We were talking a little bit about my work and the idea of future generations. And she was saying how abstract this is. And she actually suggested, well, what does it look like if you go back instead? And that to me was like, wait a minute, I am my ancestors' future generations. And we who are alive now are ancestors to those who come after us, either genetically or not. And that, I think, has been important in my thinking, kind of seeing back to this story with Pubby, seeing my story as woven into this tapestry of human experience and let's make a better story. Thanks for making time for this conversation, Kim. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks for the conversation and for all you're doing. Thanks again to Kim Nicholas for that conversation. Her new book is called under the sky we make. I do want to say that since recording that talk with Kim, I have radically reduced my red meat consumption. I am walking and biking more than I'm driving, and I'm taking a close look at other ways in which I can do better. Before we go, I also want to thank Leslie Chang and Tom Hayden for their guidance on this episode. This story was produced by Morgan Honecker. Thank you always for listening to Generation Anthropocene. See you next time.